Are you mighty enough to be a member of the greatest generation? Well, let's find out when we take a look at some LucasArts flight sims this week on the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 43 of the Upper Memory Block Podcast. I'm your host, Joe, and I am back with you once again to talk about a game from the DOS and pre-Windows XP gaming era. So, it's the first show of 2014. It's early January. Happy New Year, everyone. I hope your holidays were were great, and if you celebrate Christmas or Hanukkah or Kwanzaa or whatever it is that you celebrate, that uh, you had a good one. And uh, I know I had a really relaxing vacation. We had uh, my parents came up from Montreal for a few days and uh, we spent Christmas and New Year's together amidst the uh, ice storm and blackouts in uh, in Toronto. And uh, there was some running around back and forth, getting a Christmas Eve dinner to a house that actually had power and uh, things like that. But overall, it was fun. Uh, I got a lot of uh, a lot of gaming done. The Steam winter sale was going on, so uh, I indulged, let me say. And uh, yeah, a lot of cool stuff, a lot of modern games that uh, I hadn't had a chance to, uh, to fiddle with that uh, I had a bunch of free time to do. I went skiing a little bit, whole bunch of great stuff like that. So hope your holiday was great. And uh, now we're ready to get back on track and talk gaming. So enough about that. Let's get to the news. So news was a little slow over the holidays, but uh, in the past week, things have kind of picked up a bit. So back before the seventh guest show, uh, a little while back, I mentioned that a Kickstarter for the seventh guest three was live. I also mentioned a little later on uh, how it didn't meet its goal. Well, Trillabyte is back and uh, with a different and more reasonable, let's say, funding strategy. Uh, so instead of doing going all at once, trying to make $435,000 in one shot to fund the game, uh, they're attempting more of a tiered approach. So once they reach $65,000 of funding on this new uh, funding platform, which is called CrowdHoster, I believe. Uh, so once they hit $65,000, they'll develop a mini game, which will be a, a single floor of this new version of Stealth's Mansion. And uh, so then from there, they'll try and get to $275,000. Once they hit that goal, they'll develop the second floor and beta kind of the full game. At full funding, $435,000, all the kind of quote-unquote Kickstarter, but, you know, crowd hoster of rewards will be made available. Uh, over that, we have the stretch goal. So if they never actually hit $435,000, the, uh, the the rewards that you apply for actually will not go out. So it's interesting. Thus far, they've collected about 18000 a little over $18,000, so I'm not sure if this is going to work either. They've given themselves a three-month window instead of one month, uh, but I will keep an eye on things as I always do. Next, we've got some GOG news. Uh, it seems that as of January 1st, Fallout, Fallout 2, and Fallout Tactics will be removed from GOG's library. In addition, they'll actually also be removed from uh, Steam's library. So they've actually done this already. The games are now not available uh, for purchase on GOG or Steam. So this is because rights for these games are transferring from Interplay over to Bethesda, who owns Fallout 3 and onwards. And uh, new distribution deals have to be penned and agreed to and lawyered and all that stuff. So uh, Bethesda will initially 
be focusing on Steam, and no news as to GOG's fate for uh, distributing the games has been released. I'm sure there's a bit more complexity there because of uh, GOG's requirement that there be no DRM on the games. Uh, If you bought the games on either platform, they're still available for you to download. Uh, However, they can no longer be purchased. They're actually not uh, visible in the GOG catalog anymore, and... I'm not sure if they're visible in Steam. I know they are visible for me, but I already own them there. But um, the uh, the buy for a friend button is uh, is grayed out, basically. So um, I'll update everyone as news comes out. It's kind of a, an interesting little turn of events. And uh, I guess this is why GOG put uh, Fallout 1, 2, and Fallout Tactics uh, out for free early in their winter sale. Because uh, I guess they knew that uh, they were going to be going away soon. So next in more GOG news, maybe in light of this uh, this development with Fallout, Wired.co.uk has a great interview with Guillaume Romborg, uh, who's the managing director of GOG. In it, he discusses GOG's history, how they got started, how they overcame some initial issues. Uh, they talk about GOG's philosophy and their future. So if you're into retro, indie, or DRM-free gaming, which if you're listening to this show, you most likely are, uh, it's a, a very interesting read over at wired.co.uk. I will, um, I will post that in the show notes, as I always do. Finally in the news, we have a little bit of news on Star Control. So way back when I mentioned, uh, way back when, uh, I'm not sure exactly when, but definitely after the Star Control show, uh, I mentioned the rights for Star Control were bought by StarDock Software. Well, they're developing a new Star Control game, and uh, they've been involving the uh, two original creators quite heavily. Uh, They'll be creating sort of an alternate timeline for the series, so that should the original creators, the Toys for Bob guys, want to carry on their story, they will be able to. I believe... Those uh, those two, I believe it was two guys that were in charge of Toys for Bob, uh, are very busy right now doing stuff with Skylanders, which is a huge money maker. And I'm not, I don't think they're still called Toys for Bob, but I might be mistaken. Uh, anyways, if they want to get back into it once uh, once Skylanders dies down, then uh, Stardock, the president of Stardock, said in this interview that uh, they will be able to do so. Now, Stardock is a great company. It makes really great games. I think Galactic Civilizations is by them, all kinds of other 4X kind of space games and stuff like that, and some really cool Windows utilities, which is, uh, I always find it very, very interesting that Stardock both makes these really complex strategy games and the thing that lets me open Windows 8 apps in a window. <laughs> it's uh, definitely uh, a bit of a a broad uh, software uh, product base, let's say. So anyways, I, I have faith in Stardock. This is a good company and I have faith that this will work out. So as always, I'll keep you guys in on things and we will go from there. So before we get into the main topic, we have got an email from Francisco. Francisco hosts the Retro Rewind podcast, whose ad I run on the show every once in a while. Really great guy, really great show. So Francisco writes, great episode as usual, Joe. I had actually never played a Police Quest game. At least I thought I hadn't until you revealed that SWAT was in the Police Quest pantheon. I remember my brothers and I got SWAT from a going out of business bookstore of all places in my hometown. 
We never got very far since this semi-adventure-style gameplay was not what we were used to. RTS, FPS, and SNES were more in our wheelhouse. At any rate, it was nice to learn this insight and just goes to show why I visit the upper memory block each time you do a show. Well, thank you, Francisco. Uh, yeah, you know, I had a, I had a, I had a really good time doing, uh, doing those Police Quest games, and it's kind of interesting in that, like I said at the end of that show, you know, the, the first two SWAT games were considered part of the Daryl F. Gates Police Quest franchise, but then the second set of two, SWAT 3 and 4, were kind of their own thing. So it's it's kind of this, I don't know if it was just this marketing thing, and then the first two games were not really brought under the SWAT banner, but then the last two games were, and then they put them all out as one package, and it's just this very convoluted thing, which I don't know might have had to do with uh, the end of ending of life of Sierra and all kinds of weirdness and politics going on there. But anyways, glad you got something out of it. Glad everyone uh, got some some good responses from the Police Quest show. I know uh, these Sierra uh, the Sierra Adventure episodes are. Uh, or some of the most popular that I do. Now I've covered, uh, I guess, Space Quest, King's Quest, and Police Quest. So I just got uh, I've got a few left. I guess there's, uh, what, Quest for Glory. There's Leisure Suit Larry. And uh, then there's kind of some other ones floating around. Some some standalones like uh, Willie Beamish from Dynamics and Freddy Farkas Frontier Pharmacist and other different things like that. So, hey, there's, uh, there's a lot more Sierra games to go. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for Okay, so this week I'm doing something a little bit different. I am covering a series of games that are somewhat related, very closely related in fact, but are not officially a series. These are a trilogy of flight sims developed and published by LucasArts. These are in order, Battlehawks 1942, which came out in 1988, their finest hour, the Battle of Britain, in 1989, and finally, Secret Weapons of the Luftwaffe in 1991. So, we're back at a genre we haven't seen for quite a while. These games are all slight variations of the very specific theme of Survey Historical Combat Flight Simulation. So, what does this incredibly overqualified genre name mean, you ask? Well, It's simple, so let's break it down, starting from the general and moving to the specific. A flight simulator is exactly what it sounds like. This type of game puts you in direct control of what is a single aircraft. Uh, This is accomplished to varying degrees of realism by a simple or a complex flight model, which simulates as many or as few of the required functions of flying an aircraft. This includes basic physical simulation of things like thrust, lift, and drag, all the way up to detailed functioning of aircraft secondary controls and systems. Some flight sims go all the way up to uh, simulating small details like control of aircraft lighting, fuel mixture, and specific aircraft quirks. So let's expand our view out a little bit from there. This isn't just a flight simulator, it's a combat flight simulator. So this takes the scope of our simulator and whittles it down a little bit. We're not simulating civil or commercial aviation here. We're experiencing the thrill of aerial combat. So in addition to simulating the physical and technical aspects of flight, we're generally going to be sent on missions covering the standard gamut of military objectives. We'll do things like patrols, strike, bomber escort, things like that. Uh, Planes modeled will be either single or multiple military aircraft equipped with various types of weapons and their associated systems. 
Rolling a little further to the left in the genre name brings us to the word historical. Of course, if we're doing a military sim, a great way to focus it even more is to concentrate on a single time period. Many uh, games will focus on a single conflict, such as World War II, or even a single battle within a larger conflict. Finally, uh, the one word I never, I've never really ascribed to any genre, uh, the word survey. Basically, what survey means is that we will be covering a multitude or survey of aircraft, uh, not just a single one in exacting detail. That is known as a study simulator. So say you just want to have a flight sim about the Boeing 747, well, that's a study simulator. If you want to have a flight simulator that's about Boeing aircraft in general, that's a survey simulator. Now, this allows for more variety in gameplay as you can model different aircraft, which have different capabilities, different limitations, and different primary roles. But enough of the general, let's get on to the specific. You are listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So even though these games aren't officially a series, I will be treating them as such. So as we do, we will begin at the beginning with the first game, Battlehawks 1942. Let's get into the story then. Like Red Baron that I covered way back when, Battlehawks doesn't really have a story that's told to us in any sort of dramatic manner. What Battlehawks does is focus our attention on four specific naval battles of the Pacific Theater of the Second World War. Firstly, we have the Battle of Coral Sea. This battle took place from the 4th to the 8th of May, 1942. This battle was notable in history for being the first time in history that aircraft carriers engaged each other in battle. It was also the first time in a naval engagement that ships of either side never sighted or fired on each other. All strikes were accomplished via carrier-based aircraft. Second, we have the Battle of Midway, which takes place over the 4th and 5th of June in 1942. This was one of the most famous battles of the Pacific Theater in which, at least historically, the U.S. Navy won a decisive victory over the Imperial Japanese Navy. In exchange for one U.S. aircraft carrier, the U.S. Navy sunk four Japanese carriers, all of which had participated in the initial Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, which had taken place a mere six months earlier. We then move on to the Battle of the Eastern Solomons from August 23rd to 25th, 1942. You see a pattern here, Battlehawks 1942, everything takes place in 1942. So this was the third time that ships of the opposing sides uh, never actually encountered each other. This battle ended up being a draw with the U.S. gaining a bit of a strategic advantage uh, over Japan since uh, their losses, Japan's losses that is, were slightly greater than those of the U.S. and they turned back the Japanese invasion. Finally, we have the option to play through the Battle of the Santa Cruz Islands, which occurred on October 26th, 1942. Uh, this was the fourth major carrier encounter in the Pacific Campaign. This battle resulted in the loss of the USS Hornet and a Japanese victory. Of course, the results that took place in history don't need to reflect the results of your missions in-game, which lead us to talking about gameplay. So now that we know where and when we'll be flying, let's talk about how. After the title screen and credits, you're brought to the main menu. There's no real intro. There's just kind of a splash screen, a little bit of credits, no music. It's, uh, it's, it's pretty basic. 
Uh, from here, you have a few options. The ones we care about, of course, involve flying. Since we're new to the game, we should probably pop into some training missions, which are, are the first option. Here, you can practice fighter interception, fighter escort, dive bombing, and torpedo bombing. Each training topic has three or four different missions within it, either focusing on a different aspect of that specific topic, or uh, it will present an increasingly more difficult training mission until the final mission, which is usually a real-world simulation. So as an example, dive bombing training consists of three separate missions. Dive bombing fundamentals, where you attack a stationary carrier that isn't fighting back. The second training mission, dive bombing advanced, uh, lets you try to drop a bomb on a moving carrier, which is defending itself with only anti-aircraft fire. Finally, in the last training mission, dive bombing in combat, you simulate an actual attack with a moving target complete with AA and with defending fighters. So once you feel comfortable with the various rules you have available to you, you can roll into the next item on the main menu, which is active duty missions. Now, this is where you spend the bulk of your time playing through the battles we outlined in the last section. Each battle consists of four missions, which uh, illustrate different crucial events in each. Now, each mission, it's not necessarily a progression. It's not that the last mission is necessarily the hardest. There's different uh, difficulty levels indicated on, uh, on each mission. Also, each of these missions can be flown from either side, just so you get to see things from both angles. You initially create a pilot, and you choose whether you're going to be part of the U.S. Navy or part of the Imperial Japanese Navy, and uh, depending on what you choose, that'll be what you do. So let's take the Battle of Coral Sea to start. As a U.S. Navy pilot, the first mission of this series has you dive bombing the Japanese light carrier Shoho, which has already been damaged in a previous engagement. On the Japanese side of things, you are required, logically, to defend your damaged light carrier called the Shoho from incoming U.S. dive bombers. So selecting the U.S. version of this mission brings you to a more detailed briefing and the mission customization options. From here, you can select what model of plane you'll be flying, given what role you're assigned. So here we're dive bombing, so we can only choose... Uh, the SBD Dauntless as a fighter, but there's two different models of that plane that we can choose from. One has a bit more firepower and a bit less range, stuff like that. Uh, aside from that, you can also choose realism options. Here you have options for unlimited ammo, unlimited fuel, invulnerability, things like that. You want to make your life easier. You just want to experience things. You're not very good at things yet. You know, turn on invulnerability, turn on unlimited fuel. You can also choose your starting altitude, which ranges from 500 to 20,000 feet. Higher tends to be easier because if you have a, uh, an altitude advantage over your enemies, you can uh, gain some speed and attack them with uh, a bit of that advantage. Finally, you can choose between three enemy skill levels, cadet, veteran, and ace. So doing all that, you enter the mission. In this case, you're dropped into the cockpit of your SBD Dauntless dive bomber equipped with a single, I can't remember, it's a 500 or 1,000 pound bomb. Now, unlike many other flight sims, you never start on the ground in Battlehawks. You're in the sky right near the action, so you never need to take off, and I don't believe you ever need to land. In this case, you're behind your flight leader and simply need to follow him in while avoiding being shot down by Japanese Zero fighters. Now, controls are fairly standard for, uh, for a flight sim of this time. Since many computers in 1988 lacked a mouse, controls had to cover all eventualities. You could maneuver your plane using the arrow keys on the keyboard. You could use your mouse if you had one or a joystick. 
Now, joystick was the preferred control method. Uh, using it, you could handle your guns, drop bombs, and control the attitude of your plane. All other functions, such as throttle, landing gear, dive brakes, and flaps, were all handled via the keyboard. So you always had to have it there. There wasn't really, uh, I don't know if there was a support for the really fancy, like, Thrustmaster, HOTAS, hands-on throttle and stick uh, arrangements at this point in time. I don't think that existed back in uh, back in 88. Now, there was also a unique view system in uh, in the game, which was controlled by the number keys. Your default view was out the front of the uh, of the cockpit windscreen. This was represented by the 8 key. Pressing 1 to 7 turned your view to various directions around the cockpit and helped you maintain situational awareness. Since we're flying a dive bomber, aside from the standard forward-looking view, two other views are of import. Three, or the down view, looks straight down through the floor of your cockpit. It's handy to help you line up on bombings uh, while, you're, uh, while you're in your dive. Also, if you hit two, this is the rear view. This bomber has a rear gunner, which you absolutely have to take control of during your run. The other unique uh, view is uh, is by pressing the nine key. Here, you kind of enter what is a limited kind of free view mode. So you hit nine, it keeps in the cockpit view, but if you rotate your uh, your view, you actually don't go to preset views. You can rotate your view to any uh any point it gets a little bit confusing because the cockpit stays fixed so the cockpit art doesn't move it's not like the cockpit turns 3d and you look around it's just the view changes but the cockpit and the instruments all stay there so a little bit janky but uh definitely unique for the time since we're dive bombing let me explain how dive bombing works dive bombers were one or two man uh, fighter class aircraft so small quick comparatively, uh, which individually have the capacity to deliver one to, let's say, three bombs to a target. To perform a dive bombing run, you fly over a target, and once you're almost directly over top of it, you enter a very steep dive. Now, by doing this, physics kind of uh, steps in and the horrible law of gravity asserts itself, so when you point the plane down, it wants to go faster. Uh, if you gain too much speed, you exceed what is called VNE, or velocity you never exceed for the airframe. Once you exceed this speed, really bad things can happen, like the uh, wings can rip off or uh, other st- horrible structural damage can occur to the plane. So to avoid this, dive bombers have what are called dive brakes. Dive brakes are effectively small surfaces on the bottom of the wing that uh, open up and disrupt the, f- uh, the flow of air over the wing and cause enough drag to keep your speed in check. So since you're diving almost straight down to your target, there's no need for complex bomb sites or any weird technology like that. Once you're lined up and you're relatively low, you hit enter, you let your bomb fly. If you've done this right, it will launch on a fairly straight trajectory and uh, hopefully hit your target. Also, hopefully you've left enough altitude for yourself to pull out of the dive without smashing into the ocean. After you release your bomb, you simply retract your dive brakes, pull up on the stick and apply throttle. All the while, you should be switching to your rear gunner and chasing off any Japanese fighters who are trying to stop you and your flight. If you manage to hit the carrier, well, boom, your mission is accomplished. Again, there's no need to go back to your carrier and land. You can simply end the mission, I believe, by hitting Q and head to your debriefing. Uh, Battlehawks 1942 models six aircraft, one of each role on each side. On the U.S. side, we have the 4F Sorry, F4F Wildcat for a, for a fighter, the SBD Dauntless as a dive bomber, and the TBD Devastator torpedo bomber. On the Japanese side of things, we have the A6M20, the D3A1 Val, which is a dive bomber, and the B5N1 Kate torpedo bomber. 
the game featured some simple manual-based copy protection, which uh, would display an image of an aircraft along with an associated password that you'd have to find on a page in the manual, somewhat similar to uh, the copy protection we'll find later, we'd find later in X-Wing, except this would be uh, displayed right before you enter a mission. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... All right, really quick tech focus on this first game. Uh, Battlehawks 1942 wasn't really a huge system requirements hog. It simply required an 8086 or 8088 CPU, DOS 2.0, 384K of RAM, and EGA, CGA, or VGA graphics. The game ran at 320 by 200 in 16 colors. Uh, the sound was quite rudimentary. As far as I could tell, there was no music to speak of. And uh, the game only supported the PC speaker and uh, the ad lib for in-game sounds. Guns, explosions, and uh, hits, and engine sounds were all modeled. Engine sound was particularly helpful as an indicator that a stall was coming. So as your engine noise would die down, uh, it would indicate you either needed to increase throttle or point the nose down slightly to pick up some speed lest you stall. Now a stall is, uh, I may have explained this in the uh, in the Red Baron episode, and anyone who's played a flight sim will definitely know what this is, but if you haven't, a stall is a, a condition that occurs when lift being generated by the wings of an aircraft cannot counteract the weight of said aircraft. Having this happen when you're close to the ground can have disastrous results because it basically causes your plane to, the nose to drop down really quickly, and, uh, you know, for you to lose altitude. If you're close to the ground, well, bad things can happen. So uh, some type of indicator that happens before. The game tells you when you're about to stall, but uh, this tells you even before that. So uh, in that way, even the most rudimentary of sound in the game uh, helps gameplay. You're listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. Time for... Okay, time for some dev story. Hopefully I won't repeat too much from the X-Wing episode since, as we will soon see, these games are direct predecessors of that series. So, as with X-Wing, the inception of Battlehawks and its descendants can be attributed to one Lawrence Holland. Born in 1957, Lawrence, or Larry, uh, grew up and attended Cornell University, where he graduated not with a computer science degree, but with a bachelor's in anthropology and prehistoric archaeology. Uh, he then spent the next two years following in the footsteps of Indiana Jones, going on archaeological digs in Africa, Europe, and the United States. In 1981, he entered UC Berkeley as a doctoral candidate. To, to put himself through school, he got a job as a restaurant chef. He very quickly realized that this was not the way he was going to put himself through six years of graduate work. For the moment, though, he didn't really have any other ideas. All the while, his college roommate kept trying to create games on his Atari 800. Holland noticed this and started to get interested in, uh, in computers and began teaching himself how to program. He quickly realized after buying his own Atari 800 that uh, the sense of accomplishment that he felt from creating something himself was much greater than uh, the satisfaction he got from researching antiquities. He soon decided a career change was in order and jumped into programming and game development full time. By 1983, he had begun work at Human Engineered Software, or HESware, uh, where he did a lot of work converting our old arcade games, or current day arcade games, to run on home computers. 
1984, he created his own development team and uh, continued contracting with AHESware, kind of doing his own thing, but uh, having them do their, his publishing for him. So Holland was beginning to gain a reputation as a game designer with a complex mind and a talent for music. This uh, was from his early years playing the trombone. During this time, he created a game called Project Space Station, where you construct America's first space station. Holland says this game sparked his love for complex simulations. Jumping a few years to 1986, uh, Holland receives a call from Lucasfilm Games. Uh, They were interested in having him do some writing and design work for Labyrinth, the computer game. Uh, It was felt that the fit wasn't exactly right for this position, and he didn't come on board. Uh, Holland was more of a a programmer than than a designer and things like that. Uh, But later that year, he heard that Lucasfilm was looking for someone to convert their first sim game from the Commodore 64 over to the Apple II. While looking at this opportunity, he saw, well, he had experience programming on both platforms, and he also had experience with simulations due to Project Space Station. So Holland came on board with the stipulation that he could continue working freelance on his own time. So he was now uh, one of less than a dozen staff at Skywalker Ranch. His first task was, as uh, we just talked about, to work with designer Noah Falstein to convert his naval combat sim, PHM Pegasus, from the Commodore 64 to the Apple II. Now, PHM Pegasus was an action simulation in which you controlled helicopters, convoy ships, and patrol hydrofoils across eight missions. This was right up Holland's alley as Falstein had consulted with Boeing Marine Systems to increase the realism of the situation. Now, you know, Holland really, really was into this kind of thing. The game was developed by Lucasfilm Games, but published by Electronic Arts, since Lucasfilm didn't have any experience or agreements uh, to distribute software for the Apple II. Pegasus was a huge success. Uh, It was the first Lucasfilm game to sell more than 100,000 copies. Work on PHM Pegasus further increased Holland's interest in military simulations. Uh, this was convenient since he was then tasked with uh, a design and software development role on 1987's Strike Fleet. Strike Fleet took the simulation aspects of Pegasus and enhanced them to encompass an entire naval task force over 12 different scenarios. The game also took place in real time and in some ways can be considered one of the first modern real-time strategy games. Again, this game reviewed well. Despite most of his work tending towards programming, Holland had definitely taken on multiple roles, including music production and pure design. Uh, you know, based on a great conversation I heard uh, on uh, on the Tone Control podcast a couple weeks back, it really does seem that this is still the way of things today in the game industry. Most game development groups are perpetually understaffed, especially for so-called secondary roles like writing, music, level design, things like that. Many developers will tell you that their big break into the design aspect of game development didn't come from applying for jobs or playing politics or having big name games under their belt. They tended to come because they were simply there and said, you need some help? Sure, I could probably do that to some game designer that was in a jam. So alongside his programming task, Holland's experience in design and project management was increasing as well. So after Strike Fleet, he was tossing around ideas in his head for a third military sim that he could design himself. 
Since the previous two games uh, involved ship-to-ship naval combat, he kept in that vein. He became very interested in modeling carrier battles in the Pacific theater of World War II. Since most of these battles were actually fought between aircraft, he'd have to change gears from a ship simulation to a flight simulator. Why was he so interested in doing a World War II flight sim as opposed to a modern one? Well, according to him, a modern fighter pilot rarely encounters a target close up. He locks on with radar hundreds of miles away, or, you know, a hundred miles away, and launches a missile. From a simulation aspect, a pure simulation aspect, this is fine, but it doesn't make for a very visceral game experience. Pilots of the period depended much less on technology and much more on their own skills. This would make for a much simpler simulation that would be more approachable and more exciting. He also wanted to focus on real battles as opposed to the hypothetical. While the hypothetical conflict can be interesting and offers a lot of creative freedom, Holland felt that basing things in reality offered such a huge amount of rich background material, it would be stupid to ignore it. He wanted to focus on 1942 specifically because according to his research and his general knowledge of the war, it was an incredibly interesting and pivotal time in the Pacific theater. Everything had ramped up, but uh, the outcome was still far from being determined. Every mission, every pilot was important. So with this in mind, Holland just didn't want to make any old flight sim. Up to this point, flight sims from companies such as Microprose were line and polygon experiences. This allowed computers of the day to render graphics fast enough to make a reasonable combat simulation. Holland thought that, well, that was all well and good, it was incredibly dull looking. Not only this, but it made it incredibly difficult to identify the different types of aircraft. So instead of polygons, Holland and his team decided they would create a hybrid type of game engine. Scenery and terrain would be rendered with polygons, but the aircraft themselves would be represented by a series of 2D bitmap sprites. This was one of the first games to implement a system like this, and it has been said that Chris Roberts used the hybrid system for Battlehawks as inspiration for the Wing Commander engine that we talked about way back in episode 2. So he was calling this game Airwing. Uh, he proposed the game to Electronic Arts, since they had successfully published his previous military simulation efforts. Well, they passed on it. Undeterred, he went to his masters at Lucasfilm Games and said they should publish this game themselves. Management was on board and work began in March of 1988. In an effort to model real-world planes, the art team got all kinds of models into the office. They took photos of them and produced overlays, which they would then tape to their screens and trace. Development progressed and Airwing steadily transformed into Battlehawks 1942. In September of 1988, Battlehawks released to great reviews. The game was praised for its realism and attention to detail. As an example, the game shift with a 140-plus page manual, complete with detailed historical overviews of battles, a large section on air combat tactics, and more. Games just don't ship with accompanying materials like this anymore. It was just that great. You are listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. This, of course, led to a sequel. Holland thought another interesting World War II period to cover would be the Battle of Britain. The Battle of Britain took place from July to October of 1940. Uh, the objective of this campaign for the Germans was uh, for the Luftwaffe, that's the German Air Force, to gain air superiority over the Royal Air Force in England. 
Now, historically, this failed, causing the first major defeat for Germany in the Second World War. So, as in the last game, you get to fly on both sides of the conflict. Should you fly as the Royal Air Force, you had the option of flying either the Hawker Hurricane or the famous Supermarine Spitfire in defense of the German incursions. On the German side of the conflict, you had quite a few more options. For fighters, you have access to the Messerschmitt BF-109 and BF-110. For dive bombers, you have the uh, Ju-88 Stuka. That's the one that has the uh, the sirens on the uh, on the landing gear. So when they dive, they made the kind of dive bombing sound, which was uh, designed to terrorize the uh, populace of England. Uh, on top of that, you had the Ju-88, which was a kind of a more general purpose bomber. It could act as a level bomber or as a dive bomber. And you had the HE-11 and Dornier-17 for use as a traditional strategic level bombers. Now, bombing, again, was uh, one very cool new aspect of their finest hour, the Battle of Britain, which is the name of the sequel. Uh, well, in Battlehawks, you only add access to these kind of small two-man dive bombers, in this game, you could pilot much larger multi-engine level bombers. Like in the dive bombers, uh, where you had access to the rear turret, uh, here you had access to all the different positions in the bomber. So if they had waist turrets or anything like that, or nose turrets, you, uh, you could man those. Their finest hour, Battle of Britain, also introduced some elements that would endure through the next game and even on to the X-Wing series. Uh, you now had the ability to activate a mission recorder to review previous missions from a variety of different angles. There was also now a campaign mode where the outcome of the conflict is decided based on your mission performance. Finally, a mission builder was introduced allowing the player to tailor missions any way they wanted. Copy protection was a bit more complex in this game. In the box, there was a code wheel. It was referred to as a radio cipher freak or radio frequency cipher wheel. Sorry, to get detailed information on your in-flight map about friendly and enemy content contacts, um, you needed to use this copy protection. Uh, this was done under the guise of tuning your radio to the proper encryption or proper cipher. So to do so, you matched up the unit insignia on the screen versus the name of an airfield. This revealed a number on the code wheel, which you'd enter into your radio. Uh, if you didn't do it, you could still play the game. However, it did make life a bit more complex since you wouldn't have any uh, enemy disposition information displayed on your in-flight map. Also, the game would keep bothering you to tune your radio. Keep saying along the bottom, tune your radio. Your radio needs to be tuned. Again, this second game shipped with a huge and detailed manual covering the history, tactics, and gameplay of uh, the conflict along with really, really great color fold-out maps. To promote the game and the new mission editor, Lucasfilm Game ran a competition called Their Finest Mission, where they'd accept submissions of uh, user-created missions. The prize for the best mission was, in fact, a trip to England. The best player submitted missions were packaged in an expansion called Their Finest Missions. Their finest hour, Battle of Britain, released to good reviews and moderate success, and that, once again, of course, engendered LucasArts to commission yet another game. In 1991, the third game came along, named Secret Weapons of the Luftwaffe.
secret weapons of the Luftwaffe, or SWOTL, as I'll probably call it, SWOTL, SWOTL, too long to say secret weapons of the Luftwaffe. Uh, well, anyways, this game focuses entirely on the conflict between the U.S. 8th Army Air Force and the Luftwaffe from August 1943 to near the end of the war in 1945. This game definitely covers a much longer time period than the previous two had. In addition, even more ways to play the game were available. You can play historical missions that uh, are similar to the historical missions in X-Wing. Uh, they are standalone experiences separated by aircraft type, which allow players to experience specific battles during the conflict without having to take part in a huge continuity. Swaddle also carries forward the mission builder from their finest hour. Here you could define different types of quote-unquote on-map missions, uh, you can define various ways of enemies, what kind of plane you're flying, what kind of plane they're flying, if you're bombing, if they're bombing, if you're defending, etc., etc., etc. Next, another thing that would carry over into X-Wing, the tour of duty. Here you can create a pilot or a flight crew, in case of the bomber, uh, and fly across a predetermined number of missions. The exact number depends on which squadron you choose to join. It ranges basically from 25 to 55. As you progress through the war, your pilot or your crew accrue experience, ranks, and awards just as you would in reality or in the follow-up games. If you complete your tour of duty without dying, you can then begin another one. Isn't that a great reward? It's like, yeah, you didn't die. Go out and try not to die again. Finally, the big daddy of Secret Weapons of the Luftwaffe was the campaign mode. Now, this mode was extended out from the previous game. Campaign is now a full strategy metagame. You're in charge of your side's actions in the war. You plan missions via the mission builder. There are eight factors which come into play for the campaign. These are number of German fighter pilots, number of deployed Luftwaffe groups, aviation fuel stock, jet fuel stock, gasoline in stock, munitions in stock, ball bearings in stock, and transportation condition. Now, the first four elements all directly affect the German Air Force, that being number of pilots, number of groups, and the two different kinds of aviation fuel. The second set of four, that's gasoline, munitions, ball bearings, and transportation condition, are just war industries, so they only have an effect on the German army. So as the U.S., your goal is twofold. It's either to destroy the Luftwaffe or destroy the German war industry. You can also do both of these. As the Germans, you need to stop the Americans from doing this. The first condition is met by depleting the first four factors I talked about. The second goal is done by depleting the war industry elements unrelated to the Air Force. So by choosing various targets, if you want to choose fuel depots or factories or roads or whatever to, uh, to attack, that's kind of how you deplete these, uh, these factors. Unlike the previous two games, this game featured uh, some rudimentary media music as you've already heard. Now, the original game allowed you to pilot eight different aircraft, including early German jets and the infamous B-17 Flying Fortress strategic bomber. This was by far my favorite part of the game. As you see, for some reason, I'm really into bombing in these games. Like in Finest Hour, you could man any position in the B-17, including the Bombardier, where you have access to this really cool, fully functional bomb site. So you basically set the bomber to autopilot, and then you could switch to the bombardier position, zoom into your target, and set the release timer. Once you pass over the appointed spot that you marked in the uh, in the bomb site, your bombs will release automatically just like they would in reality. I thought that was the coolest thing on earth. 
The rest of your bombing run can be spent on the various turret positions, helping your fighter escort chase off German defenders. So four expansions came out for the for uh, secret weapons of the Luftwaffe, introducing new aircraft like the P-38 Lightning, the P-80 Shooting Star, and the HE-162 Volksjager, another late war German jet design. So uh, the P-38 did take part in, in the war, but uh, the Shooting Star was a very early US jet, and I'm not sure how much active service it actually saw. Same with this one, and there was another uh, German jet fighter that uh, was locked in expansion, or released in expansion. So Secret Weapons of the Luftwaffe released in 1991 and was viewed as the pinnacle of these Lucas World War II sims. It was exciting and complex with enough options for gameplay to appeal to beginners as well as veteran gamers. You didn't care for the strategy aspects? Well, you're not missing anything. Just play the historical missions or the tours of duty. It was a very, very well-rounded game. Finally, there's one more game that bears mentioning here, and I honestly knew nothing about this one until I did research for this episode, and that is 2003's Secret Weapons Over Normandy. Uh, this was developed by Holland's Totally Games. This is the company that, uh, that Holland formed when he left LucasArts. Uh, it appears the game was built primarily for the Xbox and the PS2, but there was a PC port. Uh, from what I can gather, it appears that uh, there's a more linear campaign telling the story of a fictional pilot named James Chase. He is a member of the classified uh, RAF squadron known as the Battlehawks, and they're fighting the Luftwaffe, and uh, specifically an opposing German special ops squadron known simply as Nemesis. Uh, the game has a much richer narrative than the older games, but it also strikes me as very arcadey. You control your plane from a chase camera view, and it doesn't appear to have a cockpit view at all. Plus, the physics seem very unrealistic from the uh, from the YouTube videos I was able to watch. You could kind of kick your plane around any way you wanted, and it would basically do it. Uh, regardless of this, all reviews of the game that I could find say it's great. So if anyone's played it, Drop me a line, let me know. Please, please do. I'm very interested. Let me try and get my hands on it uh, and, uh, and see what I have to see for myself. You are listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast. So what does the future hold for these flight sims? Well... For the moment, not much, it seems. Uh, the last thing Totally Games released was an iPhone app in 2010. And uh, I guess Disney now owns the rights to the existing games. So I guess time will tell. But for the moment, not a whole lot. But where can we get, maybe there'll be some good news here, where can we get these flight sims today? Well... Unfortunately, as with many LucasArts games, not anywhere easily. Uh, there are certainly abandonware sites where you can get the original game files, though that's of dubious legality, as I always say, and uh, you'll have to get them up and running in DOSBox on your own. Uh, you can also find some physical copies floating around eBay, or if you still have them, then uh, you know you can definitely do that. You know, I, I was able to get it in, in, a, in a manner, <laughs> let's say, and uh, I was able to get it up and running on DOSBox, and it wasn't horrible, but it would be really, really great if these games could be made available on Steam or GOG or, you know, some other way. I think it's just, it's, it's, it's unfortunate that there's no way to get our hands on these things in a very straightforward manner. Okie dokie, as always, before we get to the verdict, 
We've got an email. This one's from Mike. He writes, Hi, Joe. It's Mike from beautiful Glendale, California. I was happy to hear you'd be covering Lucasfilm's early flight sims in your next episode and wanted to share with you a few thoughts on their finest hour, Battle of Britain, a game that holds a special place in my heart. First, a personal story. In 1990, my family moved across town and I began my freshman year at a high school where I knew absolutely nobody, which was pretty terrifying. For some reason, probably the fact that I was a geeky computer game obsessed 13 year old, I removed the edges of the Battle of Britain game box and placed its cover art inside my transparent school binder so that other students could admire it, I guess. Well, one person in my physics class did notice it. He told me he liked the game too and he became my first friend at that school. Turns out we were both obsessed with computer games of all types. He actually seemed to enjoy amassing pirated games more than playing them, and we remain friends to this day, so Battle of Britain helped ease me into my adolescent years. As for the game itself, I have very fond memories of playing it. I loved dogfighting in the Spitfire and switching between the different positions in the German bombers. The game felt quite realistic at the time, and knowing that it came from Lucasfilm, I felt like I was engaged in the types of battle that ins- battles that inspired the X-Wing and TIE Fighter dogfights from the Star Wars movies. I never really got very good at the game. I still lost countless hours playing its missions. I bought a CH flight stick specifically to get better at that game, a peripheral that still makes me a little weepy. That joystick lasted my entire four years of high school, even after the thrashing I gave it once Wing Commander and its sequel came out. Sadly, my 386SX wasn't powerful enough to play its follow-up, The Secret Weapons of the Luftwaffe, and to this day, I still have a desire to try it out, but I haven't tried grabbing it from an Abandonware site because I'm afraid the experience wouldn't really stand up to my memories of playing Battle of Britain. I haven't played that game in more than 20 years, but watching a few videos on YouTube makes me think I'll never truly recapture the excitement I felt at that time. So I'm very much looking looking forward to hearing your thoughts on how the game holds up. Ever since Battle of Britain first came out, I've imagined that the ultimate gaming experience would be a hyper-realistic version of that game in which each plane in the air was actually being piloted by another person playing somewhere via modem or now over the internet. I don't have a gaming PC at the moment, soon, so I don't know how games like War Thunder stack up, but I hope that someday someone is able to create that experience. Perhaps Star Citizen will be that game for the space sim genre? That's my hope. I think that's enough for now. Thanks for letting me share and feel free to slice and dice this as needed for time constraints. And thanks again, Joe, for all the great work that you do. Keep on blocking. Mike. Well, thank you, Mike. And, um, you know, I haven't played War Thunder myself or World of Warplanes or anything like that. My understanding is that they're not as much uh, kind of realistic flight simulation kind of things. It's definitely more arcadey more like uh wow in the air kind of a thing like oh let's you use this special maneuver or something like that now someone correct me if i'm wrong uh i really should give it a try especially since i think both of them are free to play uh have a friend at work stan let me know <laughs> talk to me on monday who i know i have a friend at work that uh that has gone through them so uh yeah maybe i'll come back and uh, and i will have been schooled but uh you know, I was kind of looking for the same thing, and uh, I know the Red Baron Kickstarter was trying to do something like that. Unfortunately, it didn't. Uh, it didn't succeed, and I'm not sure if they're still working on it or not. But uh, but yeah, at a CH flight stick. Oh, I had a CH flight stick, and yeah, it lasted me a long time too. It's a toss up between that and my uh, Gravis Advanced 
joystick. Though I do remember having this one joystick. It was kind of a very, I went through quite a few of them for some reason. And um, I had a really crappy one that I didn't buy for much money. And I remember I was playing some kind of racing game where you had to push forward on it all the time. And uh, all of a sudden, one day I was pushing forward on it. And all of a sudden, the stick just went crack and it went limp in my hand. I snapped the stick right off of the base and there was just this limp wire holding it on. And uh, that made me pretty sad. And I think that is what resulted in me getting a CH flight stick. So thanks a lot, Mike. And that's it for emails today. If you guys want to send me emails about this or about anything else, as always, drop me a line, podcast at umbcast.com. Also, I haven't gotten a voicemail in a while. I really, really love voicemails because uh, it changes up the tone of the show a little bit. It lets, uh, lets some other voices get on. It's not just me blathering on for what is now 52 minutes. So, uh, yeah. You're listening to the Podcast. Okay, so do these games hold up today? Well, this one honestly really is a tough one. Now, I'm a flight sim fan, as I've stated before. Flight sims are what made me join the Air Cadets and get my pilot's license, and and I've always had a great love for them. But what I'll say is this. Uh, Right off the bat, these games don't come across super well anymore. But the more you play them, the more you get to understand, and the more the rudimentary sim systems kind of grow on you and the more you make your brain realize how the low-res graphics work and what is what, uh, the more fun these games really do become. Secret Weapons of the Luftwaffe definitely holds up the best, if only for the bomber simulation aspects of it. These are incredible. I love the fact that you are in fact running an entire crew instead of just having the whole world on your shoulders. You line up your bomber on target, You pop on the autopilot to keep things straight and level, and then you get to work doing everything else. You aim your bombs, you jump around to something like six different turrets. There are controls for your individual engines. It's really, really cool. If an engine catches on fire, you have to shut it down. There's just all these little things you have to do that they're not super fiddly. It's not like, oh, I actually need to know how to fly a B-17 to do this, but there's just a bunch more stuff you have to think about than sitting in your Spitfire and, you know, shooting down uh, ME-109s. The campaign mode is damn cool, and if you're into that kind of thing, uh, the interface is definitely a little squirrely, and you have to read the manual to figure it out, but it can be a lot of fun too. So, as a general recommendation, I can't say I recommend these games to everyone. These are not the combat flight sims that are going to sell you on the genre if you're not sure about it. But if you enjoy flight sims, if you're a fan of offerings of the time from Dynamics, like the Red Baron, Aces Over Europe, that kind of stuff, or the older games from Microprose then you will most likely enjoy these as well. All right, before we finish up for the day, it's time for another giveaway. I am giving away the entire Wing Commander collection from GOG. This is courtesy of good friend of the show, Paul Evans. He writes in every once in a while, great guy. So as usual, drop me a line at podcast at umbcast.com with the subject line Wing Commander Giveaway. No need for a Steam ID since this is a GOG key. Remember folks, this is like eight games I'm giving away here. This is the prime Wing Commander games, you know, one till prophecy. Wing Commander Academy, Wing Commander Armada, both privateers. This is a big deal. So get those emails in. You'll have until the end of the month of January to get this one in. So that's podcast at umbcast.com, subject line Wing Commander giveaway. I will choose randomly. Uh, I know a bunch of people were super interested in this when it came around. So thanks again, Paul, for uh, for sending that over to me to give away. And uh, I know someone is going to be 
really damned happy. Have you ever experienced uncontrollable bouts of geekdom? If so, the Anomaly podcast may be right for you. In clinical studies, Anomaly's interviews, convention reports, commentary on geek culture, games, sci-fi and fantasy television, literature, and film provided a feeling of fullness while promoting health for optimal geekiness. The Anomaly podcast is not suitable for all people. Only geekily active cool chicks with a healthy sense of humor should listen. Geekily active cool guys should listen too. Anomaly has resulted in sudden fits of squee. Broad smiles may appear without warning and could become permanent. The most common side effects of Anomaly are unconsciously joining in the Gamma Quadrant golf clap, out loud, at work, to the amusement of co-workers, and attempting to interject opinions aloud to hosts who can't hear the listener. But in all cases, the benefits outweigh the risks. Ask your anomaly if you're healthy enough for entertainment of this caliber. You don't need a doctor's messy handwriting to obtain a free subscription. Anomaly is available over-the-counter at Stitcher Radio and in the iTunes, Zune, and BlackBerry stores. You can also stream episodes of Anomaly and Anomaly Supplemental at anomalypodcast.com. That's A-N-O-M-A-L-Y podcast.com. Just one one-hour episode provides 24 hours of relief and never leaves a bad taste in your mouth. Music by JewelBeat.com So that's that for another week. Thanks to all the contributors, as always, and thanks again especially to Paul for the great uh, game giveaway opportunity. Next week, I'm going to go back to the root of RTS games with Dune 2. I'll probably talk about the first game a bit as well, you know, Dune 1 or whatever. There's a little bit of a story there, but uh, I really want to focus on Dune 2, the RTS game. I know a lot of people have been asking about it. I haven't done an RTS in quite a while since Command & Conquer, I think. So that should be real fun. As always, as I say all the time, send email or audio comments to podcast at umbcast.com. I love hearing from you guys. Audio comments, send me those voicemails. I love hearing your voice. Thanks to Rick Moyer for his great audio work. You can find his stuff over at moyermultimedia.com. You need any kind of professional audio, video type of creative work, Rick Moyer is your man, moyermultimedia.com. Check out the show notes at umbcast.com. Join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash umbcast. Follow the show on Twitter at twitter.com slash umbshow and me personally at twitter.com slash billybob476. You can also find the show on Steam at steamcommunity.com slash group slash umbcast. I'm going to try and be a little more active over there. And you can find me on YouTube at youtube.com slash umbcast. I didn't have a chance to put up any uh, playthrough videos for uh, for this week's show, but uh, definitely going to be some Dune 2 stuff going up pretty soon. So uh, head on over to there, comment on my videos, tell me if I'm being dumb, tell me if I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah, I love it all. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, stream us live at Stitcher Radio, five-star reviews over there, always love them. So that is that, and we will see you next time for Dune, here in the Upper Memory Block. Battle Control terminated. You've been listening to the Upper Memory Block Podcast with Joe Mastroianni. For more information on the podcast, visit umbcast.com. That's umbcast.com. 
write to Joe today at podcast at umbcast.com. That's podcast at umbcast.com. So what shall it be? Do you join the unity or do you die here? Join the